Hey everyone, I'm Zen Hess, and you are listening to Currents in Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Glad to have you listening today. In this episode, I speak with Thomas Gardner about lyric theology, his recent book that is out now with Baylor University Press. In the book, Thomas looks at the works of four different artists, Cheslaw Miwash, Terrence Malick, Marilyn Robinson, and Annie Dillard, as a way of exploring the doctrine of creation. Thomas practices patient, careful engagements with these artists, asking all along the way how their lyric thinking might enrich theological reflection. It's a fascinating book, and I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Thomas Gardner is Alumni Distinguished Professor Emeritus of English at Virginia Tech. He's authored numerous books and collections of poetry, including another book with Baylor Press that puts the Gospel of John into conversation with poets. If you enjoy this conversation, we have a couple of other episodes you might enjoy too. Be sure to check out our episode with poet Michal Oshiel about his recent collection of poems, as well as our episode with Natalie Carnes on feminist theology and the arts. I've put links to those episodes in this episode's description. And as always, if you find this episode interesting or thought-provoking, send it along to someone that you think might like it too. All right, here is my conversation with Thomas Gardner. Enjoy. Dr. Thomas Gardner, thanks for joining us on Currents in Religion. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So let's start with the title. Your book is called Lyric Theology. Most of us are, you know, inclined to think of lyric simply as something from our favorite song, uh, a, a lyric that stands out to us. You're using that term in a slightly different way. Could you bring us into the conversation that you're joining in this book about lyric as a way of thinking or reflecting? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I'm uh, basically a literary critic, so I write about um, lyric uh, poems and sequences, and uh, eventually novels and films that work lyrically. And then I'm a I'm a poet, so I so I do that kind of work um, as well. And then lately, I've been branching into um, thinking about uh, the Bible or parts of the Bible or theological ideas as as working lyrically too. So I, I wrote a book a while back for Baylor on the Gospel of John and mm. read it in part as a lyric poem. Huh. And then at Virginia Tech, I teach a class on uh, lyric thinking. So um, this is sort of, this is the last stage of my work. So okay. I think the simplest way to explain the term is to start with a lyric poem like you did and think about the way a lyric poem works. And then, um, apply its claims as a way of thinking. So so how does a lyric poem work? Uh, so I have four or five ideas on that. Um, the first thing is that a lyric um, poem gives us a mind um, in the act of thinking. Uh, Wallace Stevens says it's a, po a poem is the mind in the act of finding. Hmm. So that means that a poem 
is a sort of a drama in which a mind almost on a stage moves forward, retreats, revolves around something, revises itself and, and tries to, to make progress. And to interpret a poem, you have to interpret that whole movement of the mind rather than just right. a couplet at the end. Right. So, so a poem is a kind of a drama. Um, and then second, a lyric poem is always grounded <clears throat> in particulars. Um, it's handling light or it's handling a lover's hair or it's mm. handling a particular sort of memory. And it takes those particulars and as it handles them, it tries to lift lift them up into praise for your lover's hair or um or lament she's not here anymore or bewilderment where's god when i need him that sort of thing so it's a mind in the act in 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 the act of finding something it's it's grounded in particulars and then it's not an argument right which is what right. most writing is and it's not a narrative really it's not conceptual instead it's 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 a kind of exploration and then maybe the fourth claim is that it it does this work musically. So yeah. originally a lyric poem was was uh, poetry sung to a lyre. Somebody was was playing around on a harp. Yeah. So it's it's musical in the way that it thinks. And what that means really is that it <clears throat> instead of making an argument, it uses images or um, sounds or figures of speech, um, and it puts them together through resonances. One thing mm -hmm. is juxtaposed to another, but there's a kind of a space between them. And, and as those spaces start to resonate, we get a kind of inward music, which is what you would call poetry or song or something um, like that. Um, so there's meaning, but it's, <clears throat> it's, it's implicit. It's not totally worked out there there are gaps or holes or spaces in it and then that kind of leads to the the last idea is that a lyric is intended to be re-performed by the mm. reader or by the listener or by the watcher the way that you understand it is that you have to sing that song back to yourself and then you have to fill in those gaps yourself out of your own heart your own experience your own wrestling with god or missing the person that you're in love with yeah. so that's that's how a lyric poem works right and then i've been saying sort of recently but um that that's true not only about poetry but it's true about um certain novels that i love mm -hmm. it's true about film it's, it's obviously true about music and now i'm claiming in this book that it, it's also true or, or this kind of thinking is also thinking um that can be applied to theological ideas. So there's there's theology that thinks lyrically, and then there's sort of material from the world of arts that's that thinks about theological problems lyrically. Yeah. So that's that's a that's a quick version of it, but that's the conversation. That's a good way to put it. That that my book uh, sort of steps into. Great. Yeah. You have this this line this this sentence in in the book that says lyric escapes from prose meaning, almost as the soul or the spirit escapes from the body in pneuma, the Greek word meaning both spirit and breath. Um, could you say just a little bit more about that, about the way that, that lyric meaning um, and prose meaning, they're not necessarily, um, it doesn't always have to be one or the other, but, but just say a little bit more about 
how you would say lyric meaning uh, is distinguished from prose meaning? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, so prose meaning, I mean, I write prose too, right. <laughs> but, yeah. but prose meaning tries to essentially pin things down, mm-hmm. tries to, tries to hold something in place. The lyric is, um, is involved with, with almost escaping from that. It's, a, it's involved with reaching. Mm-hmm. So if you start with a particular, my lover's hair or something like that, and then you try to reach towards her and she's not here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I only have words on the page. Then, then your poem is essentially trying to escape from the body, escape from the situation, move up from the particulars of where we are towards something out of reach. And then that's, once you get that in your head, that's why it becomes such a wonderful form to think about theological ideas, because there are things about God, there are things about our spiritual lives that are finally incomprehensible or at the edge of what we can comprehend. And you can think about that by trying to pin those edges down, or you can think about those things by trying to inhabit Mm -hmm. the edges. So, um, Marilyn Robinson, the, the, one of the, the novelists that I write about in this book, says that a theological idea is a vast and luminous space accessible to anyone. Mm-hmm. They're, they're vast and luminous spaces accessible to anyone. And I think what lyric thinking does is it shows us how we inhabit those spaces. Right. And I think we inhabit them, as you said, in a, in a lyric way, by reaching, right? Mm-hmm. By, by almost trying to move beyond where we are towards something we can't quite grasp and it and it tells us that we can be comfortable not grasping that not grasping is actually one of the points of dealing and dialoguing um with god great so i have some ideas but let's have our listeners hear you um say a little bit about why you think lyric thinking fits into the work of theology why why is it important uh, to bring the idea of lyric reflection or lyric thinking into the work of theology? Because um, we're um, <laughs> we're not just minds. You know, we're embodied yeah. creatures. And, mm-hmm. and we process the world and we process our spiritual lives. Um, we remember and we forget and we move forward and we desire and we long. We do all of that sort of thing. Um, with more than just the conceptual part of our brain. We also right. do it with our body. We also do it with our ability to sing. And um, obviously the Bible knows that. That's, you know, the Psalms are built that way. The Gospel of John is built that way. You know, prayers of Paul are sometimes built that way. Mm-hmm. So so it, it, it brings in um, a part of our thinking um, that we have sometimes put aside, I think. And it's partly because we've sort of forgotten as a culture how to read poetry very well. Uh, so I've, I've kind of, you know, spent my life um, working with students and showing them that there is a way to read poetry that's actually very precise. There's a kind of thinking that goes on there that's not entirely conceptual. It's more bodily and imaginative and dramatic. But my students have learned how to do that really quite well. And and I'm sort of trying to kind of remind people in the field of theology that that here's a way of thinking that's time honored it's been with us forever but we've 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 not maybe paid as much attention to it as we could perhaps yeah. because we we don't remember quite how to read that way anymore so a lot of my book is just really patient 
readings of um, some wonderful lyric artists. Um, I said earlier that lyric is designed to be reperformed. So I essentially right. try to perform these these great novels and these these wonderful poems and films um, in a way that a reader can learn to do that for his or herself. Yeah, you said just a moment ago um, that that this idea of that you're getting at that that you, that you name lyric. Um, has been with us forever. Uh, and you mentioned the Psalms, and it made me think of um, in some of the ancient early manuscripts, um, a letter, and I'm forgetting now if it was Athana Athanasius or Ambrose, um, it would be appended to the beginning of the Psalms as an aid for interpreting the Psalms. Huh. And, and it mentions, um, you know, that, that the singing of the Psalms is actually essential uh, to praying the Psalms. And, and it, it says that the broadening of the mouth um, which I, I take to be kind of a roundabout way of saying singing itself uh, is a broadening of our spirit such that when we sing the Psalms together, uh, that we come to know Christ and Christ's own emotional dispositions and, and partner in that such that the Psalms become more than they could be if we just either read them quietly to ourselves or tried to explain them in a more prose sort of way. Yeah, I, I think that's another way of saying exactly what I'm talking about. And yeah. I think art really is one of the ways that we have to call us into that conversation and, yeah. and call us into that as as a group of readers in bodies with mouths that widen and eyes that that move and, you know, eyes that tear up, all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I really like that. So so in, in the book, um, I... I tackle essentially just one theological idea. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it applies in lots of different areas. But so I started with um, what's called the, the doctrine of creation. And mm -hmm. so let, let me just sketch that real quickly. So yeah. the doctrine of creation, it's a beautiful idea. The doctrine of creation is the idea that God created the world out of nothing, save the desire um, to share himself with 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 us um, mm -hmm. um he um intended to share the love which is at the core of his being through these material forms that would draw our attention through their beauty and cause us to delight and reach back towards him as its source um the creation works through particulars each of which sort of images or puts into a form some part of this beauty that's finally beyond us but it draws us towards us and and then maybe you would say that creation seems to be designed to engage us sort of at a bodily longing imaginative level to, to draw mm -hmm. us towards something that we see that we taste that we can touch but that we can't fully have um god being beyond all of that um there's a there's a theologian that I like, uh, Trevor Hart, um, who says um, he says it really simply that God gives us the world to see. Sorry, God gives us the world to see what we may make of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So he presents us with this sort of masterpiece designed to cause us to engage with it and then finally to engage with him. And then yeah. really what I say is that the the lyric artists that I'm talking about are simply making something out of the world that God gave us. Mm. The idea that complicates the book, and um, 
and it's obvious to anybody who's in the world, is that the world is, um, it's a, not a simple thing to take in. It's both yeah. meaningful and it's on some level to us meaningless, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and every great artist sort of makes us grapple with that, that there's, there are beautiful things in the world and yet they're, they're broken or they mm -hmm. don't last or or that or terrible things happen to them or there's trauma involved with it so to wrestle and to make something out of this creation that we've been given these lyric artists sort of teach us how to inhabit that idea from inside by both by wrestling with both the meaningfulness and the meaninglessness of it those two things are in a kind of attention and it seems to me that maybe the lyric or lyric thinking lets us grapple with that more deeply than simply talking about that abstractly you know, at the level of prayer or tears or the, the body or longing or desire or memory. You are listening to Currents in Religion, and I am speaking with Thomas Gardner about his book Lyric Theology, which is out now with Baylor University Press. trace this through four different artists. Um, for, the, for the sake of time, uh, we're going to look at one so our listeners can go and pick up your book and read about the other three. Um, but, but the chapter that I'm interested in talking with you about today is the one about Marilyn Robinson's work. You say that Marilyn Robinson embraces the possibility of meaninglessness as a kind of finding the failure of, and this is your quote, finding the failure of conventional ways of making sense of the world to be a deeply liberating invitation to see and be challenged by creation's particulars. Why don't you just say a little bit more about what you think Marilyn Robinson is doing, how she is doing lyric thinking in a way that is fruitful for the doctrine of creation? Yeah, so, yeah, let me see if I can <laughs> sort of simply. But so she's maybe the, her book, Housekeeping, the book that she wrote in 1980, mm -hmm. which I've known since 1980 when I was a graduate school, is probably what this whole project came out of. Wow. Maybe, maybe Housekeeping and then Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. So they're both deeply lyric pieces that I've loved and copied out in notebooks and tried to understand for years and years. So what I what I have seen in Marilyn Robinson is that um that the thing that we would describe as meaningless right in 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 other artists there's something the world seems meaningless if we can't have it forever or if we can't make sense of it but the fact that the world is meaningless to her in some ways simply means that we're not yet able to wrap our minds fully around it Mm -hmm. Right. And it really, that would make sense, right? That, that if God is so far beyond us, then the more deeply we encounter him, the more deeply we're thrown into a world that we can't um, totally pin down. Mm -hmm. And not being able to pin God down is, in fact, for Robinson, deeply liberating. Right. So 
uh, it's it's frustrating to most of us who would like to pin the world down but for her it opens up the world that's why all of her recent essays are all about you know the cosmos you know mm -hmm. and what we can see with the hubble um spaceship and all that sort of thing we can see how how beyond our grasp all of that is so what happened with robinson is she wrote this first book housekeeping in 1980 and it wasn't exactly a theologically informed book i think you would say it's a book that's kind of an imitation of melville moby dick and emily dickinson and thoreau and the writers that she was loving in graduate school it's deeply lyric it's just it's a book that's almost a song and the narrator of that book ruthie is um she's she's an orphan she never knew her father she's lost her mother mm -hmm. she's living um with her sister and a, a slightly wacky aunt at the side of this dark dark lake and everything that she loves seems to have fallen into that lake her mother drowned there her grandfather did most everything that she loves is gone and she feels herself she says on the edge of, of an incomprehensible reality the darkness of the lake but surrounded with glimpses or parables of something that seems to rise out of that and almost makes sense and the novel is about her taking those glimpses and turning them into song or turning them into poetry and finding herself not lost and alone through that but somehow in touch with what's at that bottom of that lake if mm -hmm. that makes sense and then she didn't write another novel um for 24 years not right. nine i so i thought she was just a, a one novel person it was like the greatest novel i thought of the second half of the 20th century but i thought that was it and then in 2004 she began this sequence of four let's call them the gilead books that mm -hmm. I think a lot of your listeners will will know and they were written after she tried to figure out where melville and Thoreau and Emerson came from and she discovered that they came in some ways from from Calvin and Edwards so she read mm. a whole lot of theology and those novels are more theologically informed but it's the same basic idea that you see in um in housekeeping right each of the each of the main characters in those four Gilead novels it has a single main focus each of them him or her is trying to make sense of the world, make sense of a kind of a strangeness that they can't get their minds fully beyond. Mm -hmm. And so they handle that strangeness um, by singing, by, by, by making music, by making um, forward and backward and retreating structures out of their engagement with those things, those strangenesses. And eventually through that engagement, they they are they're wrestling with god they're coming into contact with god so they're really living out the the doctrine of creation um lyrically it, it's as if each of those four main characters in the gilead novels looks at a particular of the world mm -hmm. you know it's it's jack bowton or it's um it's jack bowton looking at della or it's 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 one person often looking at another person who who is strange she uses a word incandescent who draws mm -hmm. you in, but who finally resists you and and that's a really wrestling with the particulars of creation i'm claiming and then moving beyond that to to kind of a confrontation with with god himself so i don't know are there any of the any of those novels that that you like if i had to guess i would say it's gilead <laughs> 
I, I did love Gilead. Um, housekeeping is the one I've spent the most time with. Um, oh, oh, Dr. Well, one yeah. of my favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for that. Yeah, when when we were in um, when I was in a class with Amy Laura Hall on love, housekeeping was one of the the texts that we were assigned to work with, along with Augustine's Confessions and Julian of Norwich's um, uh, Revelations, and um, and yeah, I mean, it just struck me as as this profound meditation on, um, yeah, I mean, meaningless feels like a good word, uh, the the kind of meaning the meaninglessness of life, that that nonetheless is a life filled with meaning. It was, it felt like a contradiction reading it. Yeah. Right. So meaningless is probably not the word that I want your readers to have. If yeah. you, if you think of, you know, the existential meaninglessness, it's not that at all. It's that it's, it's sort of incomplete. So for right. years, housekeeping was read as a kind of a dark, dark novel, mm -hmm. a meaningless novel, but, but really what I came to see because of the music of that book, and you must have felt this too, mm -hmm. it, you, you're utterly exhilarated reading that book. Mm -hmm. And Ruthie is exhilarated by a life that she can't pin down. Right. right? She, she moves away from Fingerbone with her aunt, and she spends a life wandering, which sounds depressing. But, but then when you look at the novel, you realize that the novel claims to be written by Ruthie the Wanderer, right? Mm -hmm. It's written as an adult looking back and her lyric voice is so lovely, so deep, so beautiful, so nuanced that you would have to say that handling these parables that can't be fully seen has absolutely liberated her or expanded her mind, you know, yeah. made her, you know, the person I would most want to talk to in the world. Yeah. So it's, it's a world not pinned down. She ends the novel becoming a wanderer, but wandering is in fact, I mean, it's a spiritual idea, isn't it? It's what mm -hmm. we're called to. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. it's, it's 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 kind of the 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 exile from God that we're we're called to inhabit, you know, right. and to, to fill with His presence and His absence. Right, lovely. So, you you have done in this book uh, an extended meditation with these artists on the doctrine of creation, and I think that you described earlier lyric as as lifting up particularities from life. Um, and, and I think that, that that makes it a kind of natural way to think about engaging with a doctrine like the doctrine of creation. Um, I'd just be curious how you would imagine a similar project being carried out in, with another doctrine or, or how you imagine lyric thinking um, working across other doctrines. Yeah, so, so that's sort of, a question like, what's your next book going to be? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily, so, but, but if so you I want to answer that well, question, no, you think, can. Yeah, it's actually, so maybe that's a way to answer it. So right now I'm writing, I'm working on, I just retired from teaching after 40 okay. years. And I'm, I'm writing a book um, about teaching poetry, trying to, oh, it's a creative book. I'm trying to kind of get on the page what happens when you, when students engage with poetry. You know mm -hmm. how how do, how do you do that? And and what I have seen and what I'm trying to describe is the way that we I think I started our discussion with this the way how we read poetry with our bodies mm -hmm. right that, that that part of what goes on in a poem are instructions almost as to what to do with your inner body. Mm -hmm. uh, often when I teach I 
find myself moving around a room and shifting my shoulders and that sort of thing. But but we do it internally as well as we try to do the steps of a poem. So I've been thinking a lot about the body and thinking through the body. And and what your question makes me think of is that there, there's there's essentially a theology concerned with the body. Now I haven't read enough really to to take you very far down it, but sure. but it seems like it's a theological idea to say that we're embodied creatures yeah. and we're designed to take the world and to move from the world towards God as creatures and bodies. And then it's an even deeper idea to think that God reveals himself to us through his son in a body. Mm-hmm. And even more than that, in a, in a broken, vulnerable, despairing, filled with senses, eating body right, in, in yeah. Jesus. So, so it seems like the notion of the body is, is incredibly deep mm-hmm. theological idea, both what it says about man and what it says about how God has chosen to show himself to us. And there surely are abstract ways of talking about all that, but poetry seems to me to be perhaps the deepest way that we have to ask what it would be like to inhabit a vulnerable body. What would be like to think about broad ideas through a finite body, a body that gets tired, a body that gets ill, a body that dies, a body that breaks down? Because finitude, this is sort of Robinson's idea as well, doesn't seem to me to be simply the limit that we're cursed to have. Finitude actually seems to me to be one of the lenses that we use to make sense of the world. That that in the kind of humility that finitude forces on us through our bodies, we slow down, we wait, we pause, we stumble, we stutter. Those are all things that the body does. They're not things that, you know, I do when I'm writing my books. I try to pretend like I don't do that. But, But yet our bodies do that constantly. And that kind of waiting or thinking or pausing is part of how we take in the world as embodied creatures. So I, I think that's a theological idea. And I think, yeah. um, you know, I've almost talked myself into that should be the next project. <laughs> there you um, go. So, so that's kind of how I go at it. I think I, I start with what I love about poetry. And then I sort of let that move across my mind towards sort of issues from the Bible or theology that engage me and, and ask what happens when they come together. So I, I wouldn't, I'm not using poetry really to illustrate the theological idea as much as to almost unfold it from the inside and mm-hmm. say, oh, here are resonances that maybe we don't talk about all the time. You know, and here are problems that are formed in slightly different ways that become richer rather than daunting or something right. like that. Well, I'm very grateful for this book and now very much looking forward to whatever is coming next. And <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Thank you so much for making some time to talk with us today. Glad to do it. It was really a pleasure. Thanks once again to Thomas Gardner for making time to speak with me for this episode. Now, I'm going to kick things over to Dave Nelson, director of Baylor University Press, who is going to have another conversation with another Baylor Press author about their book.
You're listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm your host, Dave Nelson, Director of Baylor University Press. Today on The Elevator Speech, we're joined by Dr. Jennifer Oz Freeman, Associate Professor and Program Director of Theology and the Arts at United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, and author of The Good Shepherd, Image, Meaning, and Power, released last year by Baylor University Press. Jennifer, thanks for being with us today. What's your elevator speech for The Good Shepherd? What's the big idea? Thanks, Dave, and thanks for having me. This book started with a hunch that there was more to the image of the Good Shepherd than has been previously understood. That the young shepherd, often carrying a sheep over his shoulders on the walls of early Christian catacombs, wasn't simply a sentimental image of comfort in a funerary context. So to understand this image in its early Christian context, I traced imperial and religious uses of shepherding imagery as far back as I could, which led me to the rulers of ancient Mesopotamia and Egypt. And there I found that numerous leaders referred to themselves as shepherds of the people. This kind of protection often involved defensive violence, much like how an actual shepherd has to defend their flocks from predators. Deities were also likened to shepherds in their roles of protection and guidance, particularly into the afterlife. So you might think of the crook and flail in Egyptian images of pharaohs and gods. Uh, in Greek and Roman literature and philosophy, the shepherd leader was found engaging in battle. As for example, military leaders were referred to as shepherds and their uh, soldiers as a flock in the Iliad and the Odyssey. In all of these ancient contexts, the shepherd motif was also used not only to praise leaders, but also to critique them. So somebody might be a bad shepherd if they weren't ruling well. And then likewise, the kind of unthinking flocks um, of subjects could be critiqued in that way. So all these various iterations of the shepherd figure served as a very nuanced background for the good shepherd um, image that was first described by Jesus in the Gospels and then invoked by his followers for you know, centuries after that. So the, the Christian use of the good shepherd was effective precisely because it played on and then very significantly uh, subverted those previous meanings of the shepherd leader. So as Jesus was understood as both the shepherd and the sacrificial lamb. Right? So as theological and political dynamics shifted in the early Middle Ages, explicit references to the Good Shepherd fell out of fashion with Christian emperors, and that's something I trace in the last chapter of the book. At its core, my book invites us to reconsider not just the Good Shepherd motif, but any image that is so ubiquitous that it's easily passed over by modern viewers. Images create realities. They are they're instrumental in constructions of power, and so I think they require careful consideration and study. Fascinating. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a beautiful book. Thank you for sh sharing your elevator speech with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm Dave Nelson, director of Baylor University Press, and my guest today has been Jennifer Oz Freeman, author of The Good Shepherd, Image, Meaning, and Power, now available from Baylor University Press. So that will do it for this episode of Currents in Religion. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with someone that you think might enjoy it too. And subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss future episodes. Leave a review to let us know how we're doing. And of course, you can engage with us on Twitter at C-I-R Baylor. Until next time, take care.